Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in each episode of this podcast, I'll be looking at uh, one of H.P. Lovecraft's works, both his fiction and his nonfiction writing, his poetry, and everything else I can get my hands on by, by Lovecraft. Our goal here is to explore his historical vision, his historical context, his, his racial thinking, and to really grapple with it, to not compartmentalize it and, and lock it away like a dirty secret. Uh, and not to not to use it to somehow you know throw out Lovecraft's legacy, important legacy to the to the genre of, of weird fiction, uh, but that's going to require us to kind of try to get deep into his historical um, context. So right now we're working through the stories, uh, Lovecraft's early stories up through and including 1919, uh, and when we're done with that, we're going to go back and look at some of his early nonfiction writing, some of his early poetry and a mixture of other things before moving on to the second epoch, the second era of Lovecraft's uh, writing, which will take us through uh, 1924, 1925, up to around the work of uh, the writing of The Horror at Red Hook, his return from New York. That's kind of a turning point um, moment for me as I look at Lovecraft's writings. So we're going to kind of flip through from the fiction to the nonfiction and, you know, especially his letters. We're going to grapple into his letters. That's what I'm going to do. But no one else has done in these types of HPL read-throughs, as far as I know, anyways. They might mention the letters, reference them, talk about one or two, but, you know, actually digging into them. That's going to be my, my goal. Um, anyways, uh, what we're going to look at today is the statement of Randolph Carter. Uh, this was originally written in 1919 and it was published in one year later in 1920. Um, the actually the Lens, Leslie Klinger anthology, the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft that I'm using for a lot of these stories, you know, puts this one chronologically before Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Um, but actually, his later anthology has a has a when it was written kind of chronology and it puts statement of Randolph Carter later than Beyond the Wall of Sleep. So um, that's why I'm looking at it at this point. Um, so this story, not actually that much to say about it in terms of the themes I'm exploring in this podcast. It's a nice, it's, it's kind of a Poe-esque uh, horror story that has just this really great effect at the end, and it builds up to that. And I think that is the power of the story. Um, it kind of works like The Outsider in that way that you know, actually, of course, the outside, there's more to talk about in terms of like the psychological themes and all that. But uh, this is a, a straight up horse tale and it's quite effective. Um, now, apparently this was based on one of Lovecraft's dreams, uh, kind of like the the short story, Apoteth uh, was based on one of his dreams. I think a few others, you know, Polaris famously was was based on one of his dreams. Uh, so this was one of those, and I'll, I'll take Lovecraft's word for it, that it was based on one of his dreams. Um, now, nevertheless, although I, I find this story a bit thin in terms of some of the themes I'm really interested in, in uh, as I work through his, his, his writing, there's a few things we can say uh, about this story that make it uh, significant, something to think about. Um, so as the whole story is a, is a, literally a, a police statement 
it's written especially you really feel this early on in the story and later on when it kind of gets into more the narrative of, of the events of the evening that's being described here it becomes more uh, a little bit more narrative but the early part of the story does read like someone pr providing their confession or providing their statement to the to the police right um, in fact the first line is i repeat to you gentlemen that your inquisition is fruitless detain me here forever if you will confine or execute me if you must have a victim to propitiate your the illusion you call justice but i can no more I can say no more than I've already said. Everything that I remember, I've told with perfect candor. And quote. So actually, this this is almost like in the middle of the statement. Actually, you know, right? It's it's he's right. He's talking as if he's been sweating in the in the in the box for for a few hours already. And now this is his finally. He's saying this is my statement once and for all. This is all I'm going to say on the on the matter. Very kind of a very effective introduction, actually. I think. And so right away we're introduced to to state power. Um, I think, I think Lovecraft often uses the state to um, to achieve resolution in his stories. Here, it's it's almost a, like a hovering threat over the over the character. We don't really know what happens to him, but apparently he's being charged with some kind of crime based on what happened to his his mentor, um, which will be what happens is described over the course of the story. Or, or maybe he's just being put in jail for his grave robbing, kind of, uh, you know, his for digging around in the sepulchers. Uh, I don't know where this is set. I think kind of you can imagine this in New England, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have a specific location. Um, I guess Randolph Carter, though, is a character that shows up again in a, in a Dreamland story called The Silver Key. Um, and there we might get some more geographical clarity about where he is. It doesn't really matter because the story is just there for for the, the effect. So uh, geography is not as important here as it is in so many of his stories, I would argue. And that's one thing I've been saying up to this point is geography is actually quite key. Not just New England. Not just New England. I mean, New Eng him being a New England author is, is, is important to a degree. I mean, uh, the biography, S.G. Josie's biography of Lovecraft is called I Am Providence. Uh, Lovecraft, of course, was intimately connected to New England. And yeah, a lot of his settings of the Arkham Cycle stories are in New England settings, whether it's Dunwich or Innsmouth or, or Arkham itself. Um, but, you know, much more important is the sea and proximity to the sea in so many of these tales. You know, Kingsport's close to the sea. Innsmouth is a maritime community. Um, you know, the Mansion of Madness is an oversea exploration. Um, the Doom that came to Sarnath was set you know, by a lake, and the threat comes from the water. Call of Cthulhu is set at the seas in large part. So geography often does matter a lot, but not in this particular story. And that's that's why maybe it's I'm finding a hard time saying too much specifically about this story in the in the in the collection of themes I'm exploring. But um, again, there are a few things here. Now, the this the problem here is that the reason he's dragged before the police um, seems to have something to do with Harley Warren, his his sort of his mentor. Uh, he disappears, right? And I don't think we were ever told exactly what he's being sort of charged with or questioned about. Whether it's the his messing around in, in with the graves, kind of a grave robbing thing. Probably more likely being in the, the disappearance of Warren, who's a rather famous professor, is being explored uh, and investigated. And he's connected to it in a way, so he's being kind of. Uh, dragged around for the answer to the 
to the disappearance of, of Warren. Um, but uh, that's actually the most interesting character in the story because uh, Carter himself is just sort of observing these things and being dragged along um, by his, his mentor. So uh, Randolph Carter first kind of confirms what's been observed and what's been said about them. Uh, quote, uh, I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together, as he says on the Gainesville Pike, walking towards Big Cypress Swamp at half past 11 on that awful night. That we bore electric lamps, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instruments, I will even affirm, for these things all played a part in the single hideous scene which remains burned in my shaken recollection. But of what followed and for what reason I was found alone and dazed in the edge of the swamp next morning, I must ins insist that I know nothing save what I've told you over and over. Um, so he's again saying, I, I only I already know what I told you. And this seems to be just a repetition of what he's, he's already told the police before. Now, one thing striking here is the technology. I think that's one interesting thing. And uh, knowledge plays a role in this story in two ways. One is you have the occult knowledge thread, which is, of course, very, very familiar to Lovecraft readers. Um, you have various texts. You got curious people investigating these tales these stories, this old mythology, folklore, whatever it is, uh, at great peril to themselves doing that. And then when they try to take that knowledge and investigate it even further by physically going to places, it ends up much worse for them, actually. All right? that's, that's certainly the case in um, The Shadow of Time, where he starts to figure out some, some of the things that happened to him, but then when he finally decides to go on this expedition uh, with, I think it's Miskatonic University again, sending this expedition to Australia in that case, that's when, you know, he, it gets worse for him and as he digs more into it. Certainly that's the case in At the Mountains of Madness as well. Um, you kind of have the book learning and then kind of the physical exploration. And that is kind of summarized, that's here in the story. You start with the book learning and that leads you to do an investigation in the real world. It's just all set in this one very small confines while in Shadow at a Time, uh, and uh, what's in one of the, uh, at the Mountains of Madness? It's it's a global kind of uh, story, but it's it's very similar actually in its basic structure. Is that you investigate first and then you dig in, dig in farther and find something horrible uh, as you do that. So we got that story about like seeking knowledge, and we also have a lot of technology just on display here, a lot of modern technology, and I think that's a memorable aspect of the story with uh, um, especially this telephone contraption that gets established for the for the story to work. I mean, it doesn't really the story can't work without it because uh, you know you need this uh, phone line which connects the warrant that's going into this graveyard or into this tomb. And Carter, who remains outside, and they, all you get then are the star, is what he relates back, as horrifying as that is. So you never actually see it, and Lovecraft's never forced to describe it, um, which, you know, he's apt to do for many, many pages in his later work. So maybe it's a good thing he didn't uh, describe it. When we get to, like, at the Mountains of Madness, it's like half the story is describing these, these monsters, creatures, and things. Um... But anyways, um, so the weird studies of Harlan Warren, that's Lovecraft's language here. Uh, they were well known to, to me, our, our narrator says, and to some extent shared by me. So he's also interested in this weird stuff. 
Of his vast collection of strange, rare books on forbidden subjects, I have read all that are written in the languages of which I'm master. But these are few as compared with those in languages I can't not understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic, in the fiend-inspired book which brought on the world, the book in which he carried in, our, carried in his pocket out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren, what, tell me just what was in that book. As to the nature of our studies, must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension? So whatever this book is, you know, is it, you know, I don't know if he's dreamed of the Necronomicon yet, um, but that's written by an Arab, right? Uh, the Necronomicon. But uh, just this idea that in the Orient, there's, there's weird mythology. I mean, that's these, these esoteric books. Um, I think that goes back into the, even like the studies of alchemy and stuff, because they were reading Arabic stuff. And the Arabs maintained a lot of like classical knowledge, translated into Arabic, and later on it was preserved in Greek or whatever, and later on it was repurposed for in the Renaissance and brought back to Europe. You, can, you know that story. Um, but it's, you know, there's, there's some kind of knowledge here that Warren says, this is too much even for you, young apprentice. And, you know, you can't read this. But uh, Warren himself dominates uh, Carter. Quote, Warren always dominated me and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at him, his facial expressions on the night before the awful happening when he talked so incessantly of his theory. Why certain corpses never decay but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now for I suspect that he had known horrors beyond my kin. Now I fear for him. Now, there's a lot here that our, our narrator doesn't want to say. And, and, of course, it does make for a much shorter story than if you were to explain all this. Uh, I, sometimes I actually kind of like Lovecraft more when he does kind of lay things out here. This story is way too opaque for, for me sometimes. Like, he doesn't remember what happened to him fully, although he's able to tell this story. And he's able to record precisely the conversation he has with Warren, but he forgets everything after that. He can't quite remember what in, what in the books he studied. He can't, uh, you know, Warren can't tell him what's quite in the book. He can't really tell him what his pursuit is. All we know is that it's something to do with the death and decay and, and the preservation of, of, of life. Right. Which, of course, makes us think of maybe reanimator. Maybe he's interested. Maybe he's kind of like uh, uh, the reanimator in this way. Herbert West, in that he wants to find a find a some solution to death. That could be. But we're not told here. And, you know, that's it's just the way Lovecraft writes the story. I'm just saying it's a little bit opaque for me. Um, for, for a story about knowledge, you, know, you don't actually learn that much about what's actually going on here. Because all Lovecraft really wants to do here, ultimately, is have this moment that he must have had in his dream where, you know, a guy is reporting back what he sees as he goes down to this tomb through this one-way telephone. And then, you know, encounter some kind of monster and then you hear something that, that drives you nuts, right? Drives you insane. Or at least leads you to forget everything else that happened up to that, after that moment. Because, uh, you know, we get kind of the sense he just, he was just sort of dragged to the police station sometime later with this dark cloud over his mind. And, and but he can record a, quite a lot of details of, of what happened. So anyways, uh, he says, we're going to go, Warren says, we're going to go to this uh, big cypress swamp. Um, 
which is uh, is on the Gainesville Pike. I guess we could look up the Gainesville Pike and find out where this is. Um, but we're going to go there. We're going to go to this cemetery, and I'm going to dig down. And, you know, why this cemetery? Warren doesn't say. Carter doesn't say. It just is a place you have to go. Now, if these books, as we presume, are old world, and this story is set in the new world, right? So how did, you know, it, what's the purpose of going into this tomb to find out some answer to a, a mystery in a book written like in the ancient or the middle, mid, middle, middle ages of the middle, uh, in the Middle East? I don't know. Right. Maybe we're back in the situation of Juan Romero, where everything's kind of connected underground. Maybe there's kind of a whole network of weird stuff going on. underground, Something like that, maybe. But anyways, he doesn't want to go all the way to the Middle East. So he's going to explore the cemetery right near home. near the Gainesville Pike, wherever, wherever that may be. Actually, we got Leslie Klinger here in his, in his notes complaining about the location. So he, he's done this work for me already. Uh, so Harley Warren is described in the Soviet case as a man of the South. Uh, there are several places called C Big Cypress Swamp, several Gainesvilles. So Virginia, Georgia, or Florida. But my guess probably Lovecraft just made this up because the, the geography of this place isn't as important as it is in many other tales of his. Um, so then we get a very, very long description of the cemetery. And they finally get to the sepulcher they're looking for, remove the slab, and, and now something weird happens to our narrator because apparently his, his, his sort of memory and clarity goes in and out. It's kind of like a dream in that way. And maybe Lovecraft really is here just step by step describing what his dream, what happened in his dream in the sense that, you know, some of it was clear, some of it wasn't clear to me. You know, if, if you do remember dreams, you usually just have memory of certain moments of it. And certain parts of it and the rest kind of gets fuzzy and, and maybe that's actually what happened here um, but the way Lovecraft works that into this story is quite effective um, so they, they remove the slab and this is what we get um, in description it's quite gruesome uh, the removal of the slab revealed a black aperture from which rushed an effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started 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 back in horror after an interval however we approached the pit again and found the exhalations less unbearable our lanterns lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitrate uh, for now the first time in my for now and now for the first time my memory records a verbal discourse warren addressing me at length in his mallow tenor tone a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings so what he's saying to the cops here is now I can actually tell you what Warren was saying. Everything before that was all fuzzy. I don't really recall it, but now I have a very clear memory of what he, he says. Now what he basically says is, I, you can't go down there, you young, young one. You're not, you don't know what you're getting into. I am the one who has to go into the, into the vault and find you, but I'll keep you informed of what's going on through this, through this uh, telephone. I'm gonna carry this down and I have enough cord to, you know, to go as far as I need to down there and I'll be able to keep telling you what's happening. And so again, we have technology playing a very important role. In fact, a, a technology of communication um, and across space. And Warren here is trying to attempt some kind of communication, some discourse over time, it seems, with the dead, with the past, with these ancient books. 
right? So, uh, you know, one is more temporal. The technology of the book, the technology of this ancient lore. It's 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 a time traveling technology, right? It's a way to communicate our ideas into the future. And here you have a more temporal uh, technology of the telephone, and it's it's used quite well for the effect of this story. So, uh, anyways, Carter watches Warren go into this 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 tomb, and Carter's like looking at his watch, you know, all anxious. You know, waiting for Carter for Warren to say anything at all, and then Warren finally starts speaking, um, and what he says is nothing. God, if you could see what I'm seeing, Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this. Now he, it seems, lives uh, after knowing what he saw. So he's got a little hyperbole there. And then he says, oh, you got to get out of here, Carter. Cover the slab. Leave me down there. You know, run away. Something's happening to him, you know. And so we're just getting these messages with more and more um, intensity. First telling him, you're not going to believe what, you'll never believe what I'm seeing. It's it's not capable to be processed by the average human mind. And eventually it's like, you got to get out of here. Um Carter, hurry, it's no use. You must go. Better one than two, the slab. Nearly over now. Don't make it harder. Cover up those damn steps and run for your lives. You're losing time. So long, Carter. Won't see you again. Curse these hellish things. Legions. So there's there's monsters down here, right? Now, but Carter doesn't give up. He continues trying to tell, you know, ask Warren for answers. And then the horror shock comes. He sets it up, you uh, know, in, in a fairly long paragraph. Um, quote, I do not try, gentlemen, to account for the thing, that voice, nor can I venture to describe it in detail, since the first words took away from my consciousness and created a mental blank which reaches to this time of my awakening in the hospital. Shall I say that the voice was deep, hollow, gelatinous, remote, unearthly, inhuman, disembodied? What shall I say? It was the end of my experience and is the end of my story. I heard it and knew no more. Heard it as I sat Petrified in that unknown cemetery in the hollow amidst the crumbling stone and the falling tombs, the rank vegetation and the miasmal vapors. Heard it well up from the innermost depths of that damnable open sepulcher as I watched amorphous necrophagous shadows dance beneath the cursing waning moon. And this is what it said. You fool, Warren is dead. The monster speaks English. It's the, the I don't know if it's the ghouls. Creature from the dead, you know, the, the dead back from life. Maybe, you know, Herbert West got there before. Whatever, you know, it speaks to him through the communication device. Or maybe it's Warren somehow transformed. Who knows? We're never told. It's all, it's this whole story is just for that last moment. And I think it's pretty good. I, I like it. I just don't really know what more to say about this story in terms of the themes I'm going after. Um, certainly, I think, though, what's important is the way Lovecraft talks about knowledge, especially like the search for knowledge and the danger of the search for knowledge. This is one of this is an early story that really makes it clear that you don't you don't pick at that scab. You don't you know, you don't take the slab off the sepulcher. Right. You don't go down there. You don't even open the book. Right. Carter is 
we're told several times in the story Carter is wise not to read those books that Warren got into. Warren warns him not to read them. You know, those books, Warren tells him, don't go in down with me, right? Your curiosity is going to get you in trouble. But he's, um, he can't stop from doing this. And this seeking out the unknown usually ends up poorly for our, our characters, right? Um, now, we just read a story called The Doom That Came to Sarnath where forgetfulness, ignorance, covering up the past, you know, ended up badly for our characters too. Um, but by and large, I think Lovecraft is on the side of, of, of Warren's final pleas here to, to close up the, the tomb. So some really fun technology things, though. The, the, the use of technology to make the story work really has great effect. Um, but there, I think that's all I'm going to say about the statement of Randall Carter. Uh, in the next story, the next story we're going to be looking at is called The Street. Um, I don't know if you've ever read The Street. A lot of Lovecraft fans don't read it. It's going to be the final story of this of this series of, of stories up to and including 1919. So I think it's the last story he wrote in 1919. Uh, it's pretty much maligned as, as racist anti-immigrant propaganda, but, you know, a lot of his stories are not propaganda necessarily, but they have anti-immigrant sentiments. Um, but I, as a historian, I think it's an interesting tale because it is kind of a history of a street and it talks about cults. It talks about immigrants. It talks about a lot of the things we are trying to work out in this podcast. So the street is going to be one we're going to have to spend a little bit of time with. Yeah, as distasteful as some people might find that story. Um, so that's coming up next. Uh, if you have any thoughts about the statement of Randolph, Randolph Carter, though, let me know. I'll, I'll love to listen to what you have to say. I'll leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but that'll be it for now. So I'll see you next time when I give you my thoughts about the street. <laughs>